He's risen. Yeah, that's right. You guys know what you're doing? It's fun, isn't it? And only once a year we get to do that. Let's do it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Well, this morning we are gathering together to celebrate the most significant event that has ever happened throughout human history. We are here to celebrate the event that changed everything for all time, everywhere. This morning we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. On Friday, uh, we walked through the events that led up to Jesus' death on the cross and his burial. And we talked about the reality that for the disciples, when Jesus was placed in that tomb, a lot more was laid to rest than just their rabbi. When the tomb was sealed up, it would have felt to them like everything they knew, everything they had hoped for, everything that they had given their lives to, had died along with Jesus that day. They would have been overwhelmed with grief. They would have been confused. They would have felt disoriented. Nothing in their lives would have really felt like it made sense or mattered anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, none of the disciples were saying, well, you know, that was unpleasant, but don't worry. It's Friday today, but Sunday's coming. Right? No one was there, not at, not at that first uh, Good Friday, right? That's, they had no context for that. Jesus had given his disciples hints about how everything was going to unfold, but the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah was so far outside of the categories of how they understood the world that they just simply couldn't wrap their heads around it. So when Jesus' disciples went to the tomb and they discovered that Jesus has, had risen from the dead, it was a plot twist that was unlike anything they had ever imagined. What we see after Jesus' resurrection isn't a crowd of disciples celebrating the happy ending that they'd all been waiting for and knew was coming. Instead, we see stories of Jesus' earliest followers being shocked and terrified by these encounters with angels. We see them dealing with like complete terror and indescribable joy at the same time by the news of resurrection. We see them being so amazed and overwhelmed by encounters with the risen Christ that they cling to his feet and worship him. Jesus' resurrection brought his early followers a hope that was unlike anything they'd ever experienced. Not just because they had Jesus back with them, and they loved Jesus, they were happy about that, but ultimately because they came to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection was actually the fulfillment to God's promise to redeem and to restore all things. And their lives would be forever changed and redefined by Jesus' resurrection forever. They were resurrection people. What we see in the New Testament is that right away, Jesus' followers understood that his resurrection wasn't just like a random, exciting uh, thing that God decided to do. It was actually the defining event of their entire history. Everything in their scriptures had pointed ahead to this. Jesus' death and resurrection kind of gave them like a set of corrective lenses. 
I'll never forget the first time I got glasses. I was about 10 years old. Maybe some of you experienced this. It was particularly trippy as a kid, I think, as I was trying to understand. Sadie, Sadie's shaking her head. Understand what's going on. I put on these glasses, and for like three days, I just walked around in just awe and wonder. And I remember asking my parents, is this really like what the world looks like? Is this what other people actually see when they look around? Suddenly, everything that was once blurry and unclear just kind of came into focus. And that's kind of what it was like for the disciples. Everything that they'd been taught about uh, their history, God's covenant with Abraham, the exodus of the Israelites, the promises that God had made uh, through the prophets to bring Israel into peace and prosperity, it all pointed ahead to Jesus' death and resurrection even from the very beginning, right? The book of Genesis tells us about the origin of all things. In in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, we read that in the beginning, God created the world and everything in it, and he declared it to be not just good, very good, right? At the end, he says it's very good after he's made the moon and the sun and the sea and the land and the animals and humans. He's done the whole thing. He stands back and he says this in Genesis 1 verse 31. God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And often we read that as though it's a declaration that God has made each of his uh, items of creation as good, right? Like oceans are good, maple trees are good, alligators are good, squirrels are good. It's all good, right? But in the Hebrew, the sense of the word good is actually bigger than that. It talks about the relationships that existed between everything that had been created. In the garden, there was this sense of shalom, right? Peace. Everything was as it should be. God and human beings and the rest of creation all lived together in love and harmony. But in love, God gave human beings the ability to choose. Because love can only actually be real love if it's offered in freedom, right? And so God gave human beings the ability to decide whether they would love him and trust him and live in obedience to him or whether they wanted to turn away and do things their own way. And of course, we know how this plays out, right? God puts one tree amongst all the others in the gardens, and he says, just don't eat from that one tree, okay? Just that one, the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that one, you'll die. And in Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve are tricked into believing that God's way isn't actually best, Right, that God doesn't have their best interest in mind. And they eat from the tree, and sin and death enter the world for the first time. And suddenly, that shalom that existed in the garden was gone. The relationship between God and human beings was fractured. Right? Human beings were separated from God because of their sin. But uh, the consequences didn't end there. There was this fracture in the relationships uh, between humans, in the relationships that people had with each other. And suddenly human relationships kind of became characterized by conflict and competition and violence. The relationship that human beings had with themselves was fractured. 
One of the first things that happens after the fall is that Adam and Eve, for the very first time, realized that they were naked. They had no idea before that. All of a sudden, right, they, they realize that they're naked and they experience shame. And the relationship that human beings had with creation was fractured. It became characterized by harm and destruction rather than care. And we still feel the impact of all of this today. Right? We talked about this on Good Friday. Things are not as they should be. We see it all around us and we see it within us. In greed and in pride and in conflict, in selfishness, right? in our shame, in our weakness, in sickness and in death. Nothing in creation was left untouched by the impact of the fall. And what became clear to God's people throughout the Old Testament and what's clear to us today is that we don't have it within ourselves to fix ourselves. We can try, right? I mean, if you want to uh, make a little bit of money, you can just write a book that teaches people three ways to turn their lives around and it will sell, right? We have a whole self-help industry that kind of works this way. And people will try it, but it won't work. And eventually, you get to the end of the self-help section in the bookstore, and you realize that we don't have it within ourselves to be the kinds of people that we know we should be. We need an intervention from the outside, like an intervention from a power that's greater than ourselves to help us. And here's the good news. We have a God who pursues us in love. Not long after the fall, God starts working out this plan of salvation, this plan to redeem and to restore all things. And all throughout the Old Testament, God makes these promises to his people that one day he's going to send a Messiah who's finally going to make things right once and for all. And after Jesus' resurrection, his followers looked back over scripture and they realized that it had all been pointing ahead to Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Through him, death had been defeated, sin had been overcome, and they had been reconciled to God. They could experience this new life, this resurrection life through Christ. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, he says, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by grace that you've been saved. So on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins so that we could experience new life in him. But what does that look like? What does it look like to live as people whose lives are defined by Jesus' resurrection? 
I mean, this is like a huge question, right? There are a million different ways that we could talk about this. But this morning, we're going to kind of zoom out and we're going to talk about three characteristics of resurrection people. Three things that the resurrection invites us into right now, today, in our real lives. We're going to talk about hope, wholeness, and freedom. Firstly, Jesus' resurrection offers us hope. Can anybody use some hope here? Does that sound good? Like, we could all use some hope, right? If the cross teaches us anything, it's that God can take what seems like the worst possible situation, and he can make new life out of it. In the midst of all of the challenges and the difficulty that we face in the world, the cross offers us a hope that can never be taken from us. Right? Not, not a hope that kind of requires us to plug our ears and close our eyes and pretend like everything is okay. It's not a hope that minimizes or ignores our, our challenges. But the cross offers us uh, an incredible, courageous hope that can endure through all circumstances because we know that even death has been defeated by Jesus on the cross. Right? The end is never the end. The worst is never the worst. Back in 2020, I remember things feeling so strange to me as the seasons were changing from winter to spring. And it was kind of happening around the same time that we were realizing that uh, the pandemic wasn't just going to be like a three-week uh, big vacation from daycare. Like it was going to be a bigger thing, right? And everything just felt so, so strange. The whole situation was so new and disorienting and things felt so uh, dark and uncertain. You couldn't get toilet paper like in any of the stores. And as the weather warmed up, I would go for uh, bike rides out in the country. And I remember looking at the buds that were growing on the trees and just kind of feeling this peace. Because even though the world was facing disaster... God was still bringing things to life. That's what he does. He takes dead things and he brings them back to life. He takes hopeless situations and he makes a way forward. He takes broken things and he makes them beautiful. So resurrection people are people who live with a deep sense of hope. The second thing that Jesus' resurrection invites us to experience is wholeness. We talked about how one of the first things that happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned is they realized that they were naked. They experienced shame. Very first time. We were designed to live in this perfect relationship with the God who loves us and gives us our identity and our sense of value. And when that relationship became fractured, it's like we desperately started trying to find those things anywhere else we could get them, right? Think about it. So much of our time and our energy are spent trying to prove that we have worth, trying to prove that we're lovable, trying to prove that we have value. And it causes all kinds of problems in our lives right? and in our relationships and in the world. But listen to this passage from Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20. Paul says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood, 
on the cross. In Christ, God reconciled everything to himself, and he made peace with everything on heaven and on earth. Those fractured relationships have been healed. In his grace, God invites us to bring our whole selves to him and to let him be the source of our peace and our identity and our sense of value. He invites us into wholeness. And the third thing is this. The resurrection invites us into freedom. And this is a biggie. Uh, Freedom is like one of the the biggest themes in scripture. In uh, 1807, actually, there was an edition of the Bible that was printed in London, England. And some of you maybe have heard of this. It's called the Slave Bible. And the Slave Bible was put together uh, specifically to be used with slaves in the British West Indies. And it was a stretch to even call it a Bible because it was specifically designed to reinforce uh, the oppressive system of slavery. And what they did when they created this Bible is they removed any references to God's plans and intentions to set his people free. And they kept in the sections about things like submission and obedience and things that would compel their slaves to kind of work hard and be really loyal to them. And at the end of the day, 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament had to be removed from the text in order to get rid of all of the references to freedom. If you remove freedom from the Bible, there isn't really all that much left of it. Because God is extremely concerned with freedom. He designed every single person, each one of us, and every person who has ever lived to be people who live in freedom. But freedom is a little bit of a tricky word to define, right? Because in our culture, the way we think about freedom is so influenced by individualism and our other Western values. But in Scripture... Freedom is really just very simply this. It's the ability to live the kind of lives that God designed us to live. And scripture talks about some very specific things that Jesus' death and resurrection free us from. In Christ, we have freedom from the power of sin. Romans 8 verses 1 to 2 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. God's spirit is in us, empowering us to actually change. Sometimes you hear it thrown around that like people can never change, right? Probably some of you have said that, like people can never change. As followers of Jesus, we don't actually believe that's true. This whole idea that God can transform us, not that we can change ourselves, but that God can transform us is actually central to the message of the gospel. As we open ourselves up to God's grace, the Holy Spirit works in us and loosens the grip of things like our selfishness and our greed and everything else that gets in the way of our ability to live the way God calls us to live. So in Christ, we have freedom from the power of sin, and we also have freedom from the penalty of our sins. Romans 3, verse 23 to 24 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, 
freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Nadia Boltz Weber uh, talks about the cross as God saying to humanity, I'd rather die than be in the sin accounting business anymore. I like, I like that. I'd rather die than be in the sin accounting business anymore. Through the cross, we have freedom from the penalty of our sins. The book of 1 John uh, in chapter 4 says that love casts out fear. And it talks about how when we experience God's perfect love, it drowns out our fear of punishment from God for the ways that we fall short and that we don't measure up. God loves us when we're at our very best and when we're at our very worst. We're free from guilt and shame because God paid the price. Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross, and his love is big enough to cover every single one of our flaws and our failures. Scripture also tells us that in Christ we have freedom from the requirements of the law. Now, don't get excited. Okay, that doesn't mean that if you uh, get pulled over for speeding, you can just like whip out your Bible and expect to get out of a traffic ticket. But what it does mean is that we don't earn God's favor by following a bunch of religious rules. In the Old Testament, uh, God gave the Israelites the law after he led them out of slavery in Egypt. And the law consisted of 613 rules that were designed to teach the Israelites. I know that's a lot, right? 613 designed to teach the Israelites how they were called to live as God's covenant people but they were never able to live up to it. I mean, no shocker, 613. Like, it's a lot of rules, right? They were never able to live up to it. On the cross, Jesus ushered in a new covenant where we have salvation through faith in him alone. We don't earn it by trying really hard or by being really good. It's through faith alone. In the book of Galatians, Paul says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. When we think we need to keep a bunch of rules to stay on God's good side, we end up on this treadmill trying to earn his love, but we never really actually get to experience it. When the truth is that It's all grace. God's love is a free gift. It's already available to us. In Christ, we are free from the requirements of the law. And in Christ, we don't just have freedom from things, right? We also have freedom to live in a whole new way. We're free to live the kinds of lives that God designed us to live, right? We're resurrection people, We're free to live a life that's motivated by love rather than fear. We're free to live in a way where we're willing to give ourselves up for others rather than trying to get our own way all the time. And Paul talks about this as life in the spirit. Living in a way where we're letting the Holy Spirit guide us. Now, many of you are probably familiar with uh, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit, where Paul talks about what it looks like to live a Spirit-filled life. If you grew up in the church, you probably know a song about it, right? But probably many of you right now are like singing a song in your head 
I don't know how it goes, actually, but somebody could get up here and sing it into the microphone if you want. Uh, it's a familiar passage, but I really love the way that Eugene Peterson uh, translates this passage on the fruit of the Spirit in the message. It just kind of uh, gives a, a unique angle on it. And so I'm going to share that version with you uh, now, and maybe it will help you kind of hear the passage in a new way. Galatians 5, uh, verse 22 to 23 from the message. It says, But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. It's beautiful, isn't it? So Jesus' death and resurrection restores our relationship with God, and it frees us up to be people who live with hope, wholeness, and freedom. And that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to live this kind of life? Who doesn't want to live with hope and wholeness and freedom? Who doesn't want to live a life that's defined by resurrection? But if we're honest, sometimes it feels like there's kind of like this gaping abyss between the promises of the resurrection and our actual ordinary day-to-day lives. Do you ever feel like that? I think most of us sometimes feel like that. And that's because we're living in this already not yet reality, right? The kingdom of God has broken into the world through Christ, and we know that one day it's going to arrive in its fullness, but it's not yet fully here. And so in the meantime, we get glimpses of it, and we experience it at certain times, and God's spirit moves in us so we can live into it more fully But in our normal day-to-day lives, it can be difficult to know how to move from where we are today to that expansive resurrection life that Jesus invites us into. And the interactions that Jesus has with his followers after his resurrection teach us something really beautiful about this. When Jesus appears to his followers after his resurrection, he doesn't teach them about atonement theology and make sure that they've wrapped their head around that. He doesn't give them a three-step formula to teach them how they too can experience resurrection in their own lives. You know what he does? He meets them exactly where they're at, and he offers them what they need to move forward in their relationship with him and in the calling that he has for their lives. Mary Magdalene was the first person that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. She was weeping outside of Jesus' tomb after discovering that his body wasn't there. After everything that had happened, she thought that somebody had taken Jesus' body. And so she was devastated, and she was sitting there weeping. And look what happens, John 20, verse 14. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father 
and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus approaches Mary in her moment of profound grief, and he calls her by her name. And in that moment, everything is made right again. And then there's this really thing, a powerful thing about Jesus' words that's really easy to miss here. So far, Jesus has spoken about the disciples as his uh, servants, about his, uh, he's spoken about them as his friends. He's referred to God as his father and as the father. But here he says, go find my brothers. Not disciples, not friends, not servants, but brothers. And tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. Jesus is helping Mary understand that even though he's not going to be staying there with them physically for very long, the resurrection changed the nature of their relationships. Mary and the disciples had been brought into the family of God. Think about the hope that that would have offered to Mary in the midst of her grief. And then she runs out and she tells the disciples about the good news of Jesus. And then Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas has already told uh, the rest of the disciples that there was no no way that he was going to believe that Jesus had risen until he could see the wounds in his uh, hands and on his side and touch them with his own hands. And sure enough, eight days later, Thomas is with the disciples and Jesus appears. And Jesus approaches Thomas and he says, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And then Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Jesus meets Thomas in the midst of his doubt. And he invites Thomas to touch his wounds so that he could believe. And then Thomas this man who refused to be swept up in the joy of the disciples until he had proof that what they were saying was true, is overwhelmed with this newfound faith. And then a little bit later on, Jesus meets with his disciples for breakfast on the beach. And uh, after breakfast, he pulls Peter aside. Now remember, Peter's the guy who promised Jesus that he would He would die for Jesus, actually. He would never betray him. He would actually die for him. And then he denied even knowing Jesus three times leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So Jesus pulls Peter aside, and three times he asks him this question. Do you love me? Three times. Once for every denial, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus. And then three times, Jesus tells Peter to take care of his sheep. Peter's still going to be one of the key leaders in the early church. His failure hasn't disqualified him from what God had called him to do. Jesus met Peter where he was at with all of his shame and his self-doubt, and he offered him what he needed to move forward into healing and into his calling. The promises of the resurrection are enormous, and they really are ours to experience. 
But these interactions that Jesus has with his followers remind us that the way we enter into the mystery and the power of Jesus' resurrection isn't by trying really hard or by trying to work it up within ourselves. It's simply by letting Jesus find us exactly where we are and then lead us step by step into new life, resurrection life. So my question for you this morning, what I want to leave you with is simply this. Where are you? As you're sitting here this morning or as you're watching online, where do you need Jesus to meet you? Maybe some of you here this morning are in the midst of grief, like Mary, or dealing with doubt, like Thomas, or feeling the weight of your failure, like Peter. Maybe some of you are uh, feeling exhausted or dealing with apathy in your faith, like you're just kind of going through the motions. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he always meets us right where we're at, not where we should be. And then he leads us forward one step at a time into a life of hope, wholeness, and freedom, a life that's defined by his resurrection. So wherever you find yourself today, my prayer is that you'll be open to letting Jesus meet you right there and lead you into the power and the mystery of new life in him. Would you pray with me? And then Natalie's going to come up and lead us through a reflection. Oh, God, we thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you for your incredible love for us that wasn't willing to give up, but instead uh, sent your son to come into the world and to die for us so that we could be set free so that we could live lives that are defined by hope and wholeness and freedom. And God, we thank you that uh, you meet us exactly where we are, that sometimes it can feel like uh, the promises of the resurrection are so far from our day-to-day reality, but God, we see that you come and find us exactly where we are. God, and I pray for each and every one of us this morning that you would help us to be open to having you do that, to meeting us, to finding us exactly where we are, and to taking that next step towards this life of resurrection, of hope and wholeness and freedom that you invite us into. into. We love you, we trust you, we thank you for the cross. In your name.